Welcome to Stage, the Streaming Age podcast. This is the second part of our Freakwave episode, so if you missed the first one, I would recommend you to go back to our playlist and listen to it first. Freakwave is an audio project that has brought together a community of 84 world-renowned sound artists, composers, and ocean, well, freaks. Carmichael von Hauswolf, the very same composer of our theme music, is the orchestrator of Freakwave, and Chris Watson, renowned musician and wildlife sound recordist, is our guest host. This is a collaboration between Stage and TBA21 Academy. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tba21.org and if you like this episode, which we really hope you do, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to share it with your friends and if you have a minute to spare, please do leave us a review. Without further ado, this is Stage. My name's Lawrence English. Uh, someone once called me a philosopher of listening, and I'm quite happy with that title, so I'll just go with it. And uh, I'm presently in Brisbane in Australia. Just tell me, what is a philosopher of listening? What is your philosophy for listening? Well, look, I think very strongly that listening is about agency. And I mean, I can, I can use you as an example, Chris, in fact. What I love about listening to your recordings is that I feel in some way I'm being privileged a chance to listen through your ears to the things that you're interested in, the preoccupations that you have. And I think for me, that's what I find so fascinating about listening is that it's something we can, in some respects, share through a practice like field recording, but also that it's so absolutely individuated, not just physiologically, but psychologically. The things that we're interested in are our own and our histories play into that listening. What about your work? You know, so I, uh, w- I mean, what do you do? How do you present your work? And what are you interested in? Uh, well, you know, I have to say it ebbs and flows. In the last while, I've become actually very interested in me- like human spaces, man-made spaces. And I think particularly at this moment in this year, because there is such a, a reduction in the amount of sound in urban environments, there is this reveal that's happened. So places that you think that you know suddenly become completely alien, actually. And it's been interesting to, to particularly during the, the quietest part of co- the COVID lockdown here in Australia, I started becoming very interested in recording the, the, the major roads in the city because they were so sparse, you could literally hear a car coming for what felt like several kilometres over a hill, particularly at night when there was almost no one out, you had this reaching out into the city that was just, I found it extraordinarily beautiful. One of the projects I always remember of yours some time ago was your exploration of abandoned towns, ghost towns to the west in some of the vast spaces that you have there. Could you tell the listeners something about that, please? Because I found that fascinating and really engaging. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Just this past couple of months, I've been up north and into the northwesting, and I went back to a, a town that I visited in in two thousand and one. I, I sort of drove about six thousand kilometers around the state where I live in Queensland, visiting what were 
you, you would call them ghost towns. There were settlements for, for gold mining generally that sort of uh, were, were cannibalized after the, the sort of gold at the top layer of the, the, the um, soil was removed. They would cannibalize these towns and move a couple of kilometers up the road. So there are these amazing settlements all across the state. And um, I actually returned to one, Ravenswood, which is actually one of my favorites. And I, I guess it's a favorite because my family, my mother visited there in the 1960s when there were these two uh, sisters, the Delancey sisters, who were running the the one hotel that was still operational in this town. And what's interesting about it is in the, I've been twice since I did this project. And each time I've gone back, it's become busier. So this time returning, uh, it's actually the mine that it, that was originally for gold mining is now active as, a, as another quarry. So there's a lot of people there and the hotel is bustling. It was quite a shock. Huh. What, is it, what from tourism, the return of, of visitors? Uh, that and mining workers. So, And the interesting thing is there is this real... I think fascination with towns like that that are in these that that have this kind of ebb and flow over a century, and because there is this idea of the ghost town, the, the, the Imperial Hotel, um, which is where I visit whenever I go, is said to be haunted. So there is this kind of nice, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, hauntological quality to the space. Well, have you done any investigatory recordings there in <laughs> no, those spaces? I, I feel like I should take Mickey there. Yeah, I think between the EVP and and uh, a little bit of spectral listening, it probably isn't a bad thing. Or spectral listening, as the case might be. So tell me, tell me about Freakwave, how you got invited, and and your contribution to it. Sure, Mickey wrote to me quite early on. I've, I've had the fortune. I've actually I've never met Mickey, um, which I'm hoping to rectify at some point because I'm a huge fan of his work and of his thinking. Actually, I like the way that he approaches the projects he he, he undertakes, and. Um, he, he wrote and invited me to do it. And of course, I was very happy to participate. And I think what interested me about it was this focus, focusing in on a very particular frequency bandwidth, because I was given the bandwidth of 75 to 90 hertz, which for me is not actually... Wow, that's low. It, it is low. And it's not a frequency that I think of when I think of the ocean. I mean, obviously, it's present there. But for me, my experiences underwater and in the water are much higher. Like my the first time I ever encountered, I remember encountering encountering sound in the water when I was probably like seven, eight, nine, something like that. And I remember diving into the water at this place called Telabajara Creek, which is on the Gold Coast. And back then, because they weren't dredging the creek, it was a a quite beautiful, almost like a. It wasn't a reef, but it had that same abundancy of life that a reef has. And I just remember being in there and hearing that. The, the you know the classic sort of sense of popping shrimp and other kinds of life and just being completely unsure about what it was but that's a much higher kind of register so i had to spend some time thinking about how i was going to approach that particular the bandwidth for um freak wave so did you go out and specifically make a recording for for, for the project for freak wave i was given a part of this humboldt um current section which obviously oh yeah i was there yeah yeah which was a kind of echo for me. So I've, I've I've never actually been to on that part of the coast uh, there in South America. So I started to think about what the relationship was between almost like the echo, because I mean, we're, we're the kind of cousin on the other side of the ocean for those folks. So I started thinking about that. And thankfully, when he'd asked, we were able to, to travel. So I was able to go and make a recording um, at one of the easternmost points almost like a kind of reaching out towards the Humboldt current on the other side. Mm, nice. Yeah. And that's, and that's yeah. what um, ended up being used in the piece. 
Okay, I can understand that. And the way that the, the sound travels and the speed and the distance, that there is a sort of almost tangible connection. I mean, I, I was lucky because I'd recorded around the Galapagos Islands. And my, my area was, was the Humboldt Current. And I chose to make a selection from at night when the sort of colder water comes up to the surface and dr- sort of draws things up. But I really like that idea of a very sort of distant, um, sort of tendril-like connection. Well, I, lo- I like that idea because for me that's kind of what listening is. It's that reaching out with your senses into place. And sometimes you don't get to access it. You don't, you, don't, you don't always get to experience those things you want to while you're listening. But I love that aspirational quality of what listening can be. I have this piece called Morrow, which was actually recorded in Antarctica in that summer that we were there together in 2010. And I mean, for me, it's a very, obviously very personal recording, but I had always wanted to hear Waddell Seals um, because I still am captivated by them. That, that will be something I take to the grave. And in the very beginning of this recording, very quietly in the distance, <laughs> you can hear a Waddell Seal. And it was this moment when I was listening during the recording, I, I just felt this rush of, I mean, in terms of this thing about aspiration and reaching out of sensing, I suddenly felt like I had reached something that I never expected that I would in my lifetime. I love that. I actually quite enjoy that when things are on the periphery of, of your hearing because it makes, it draws you in. in. In many senses, much more engaging than something that's right up sort of close, super close perspective. I like being able to listen into the distance so I can really empathise with that. Lawrence, thank you so much for for talking to me. It's it's always a pleasure and and let's hear that track. It's my pleasure. My name is Jana Vindern, and I'm based in uh, Norway. I am an artist. I work a lot with uh, sound recordings from underwater. I am trying to put attention through sound to uh, biodiversity and specific ecosystems 
uh, underwater and through playing back the sound, hoping to bring attention to these um, areas and issues. And what, what drew you to make a contribution to the FreakWave project? I have been working with Freak Out projects uh, for um, many years. I mean, since 2003, when the first uh, workshop was there with uh, curated by Karl Mikael von Hauswolf. And I really like this way of um, a group project with many artists together that contributes um, one piece each that together becomes a whole. Uh, and in this particular Freak Wave project uh, with 84 artists it's quite amazing to see how kind of so many artists working together and making these different mixes that the audience can actually work on and uh, mix themselves so we have all these artists and you could kind of play with their sounds and uh, so you you kind of give away a bit of the control to the audience which i think is great and uh, and also that everybody's kind of contributing together I, I like that, and I think that's one of the great pleasures of this project. Is I, I've been to some of the freak out performances the, in the live spaces, which was which was really really good to go and just listen and soak up those sounds and walk around the territory. But the great thing about Freakwave is it's an online project because of the situation we all face about not being able to travel, and so there's there's a greater number of artists, but also this this wider variety of contributions through the mixer. Can you um, describe something about how the mixer works? Yeah, you have 12 sections of the frequency spectrum from like really low sounds, like really to the towards what we can actually play back and to the really, really high frequencies to the top of what we can actually perceive as humans. Uh, so it's kind of divided into 12 uh, sections and each artist have one section each. So you have to kind of uh, filter your frequency area or kind of make sure you're not going into the next artist frequency area. My area was 60 to 75 hertz this time. That's quite low, isn't it? And yeah, it's 60 to 75 hertz is quite low. And it's on the kind of limit of what you actually can hear through, you know, you cannot hear it through computer speakers, but you might hear it on headphones. And obviously, if you have a sub at home, you'll be able to hear it. Uh, so it's also quite limited band. So um, there is not so much uh, room there to work with. Yeah. What if if you were going with your experience recording in oceans around the world? What animals, what sounds would appear in the frequency range that that you were allocating? I was immediately thinking about the low end on of calls by whales, that is down in this area. So when I made my piece, and I was thinking this should only be one minute long. And then it's like 60 seconds and my heartbeat actually is 60 times per minute. So what I was thinking that, uh, okay, the whales are down there. And I had just also been thinking about this story of Jonah that got, uh, Jonas that got swollen by the whale. And uh, both in, in different religions for that case, you know, but also I was just having this image in my head of me being inside of the belly of a whale as it was diving. And, you know, when the whales are diving, their, their heart rate 
rates goes down. So you might have like one beat in a minute and then with my kind of beat in uh, 60 times a minute. So that was the kind of story I had to kind of make sense out of doing just like a one minute piece. That's, that's a really beautiful sort of symbolism. You're working actually with the very pulse of life and mixing those frequencies of your heartbeat with that of a, one of the great whales. What, uh, did, did you have a certain um, sea area in which you worked in? It was the metropolitan Asia, uh, which was called, it was uh, frequency numbers, uh, wave number six, for the sixth mixer I okay. was part of, yeah. Why do you think this was an important project? Why, you know, because obviously you, you get a lot of requests to work on loads of different projects and what, what was important for you for this, apart from the, you know, the artistic significance of making the contribution? Is, is there a, a, a wider meaning to this project, do you think? It is very important that the awareness of sound underwater and sound communication underwater is getting to be known among the general public. And uh, uh, so I think it's important that we are doing everything we can to kind of point towards the importance of uh, of the sound underwater and how we are influencing it also as human beings. So maybe next time you put on your engine on your on your boat, you think about that you're actually overwhelming the cods that try to mate um, under you there when you go out with your boat. That's a really important point, Jana. Thanks for doing that. It, just just finally, I'm asking everybody just to contribute a favourite sound. Now you could have a a mix from Freakwave or, you know, it'd be nice to hear a personal selection maybe from your archive. Just leave us with a sound that, that has significance for you. A recent sound I recorded was quite overwhelmingly impressive to me. It was like a school of fish and it was like so intense that it made me start thinking about how important the sound production of fish is in schools. And I could hear like, particular fish very clearly so it sounded like they were following one leader fish maybe you know this the all these things are rising um questions that then i'd like to look more into and listen more into so yeah i would say this this massive school of fish i recently heard in thailand thanks Jana. thanks for making this contribution let's listen to that sound My name is Leah Barclay. I'm a sound artist, composer and researcher from Australia and I'm currently based on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. 
Leah, thank you for talking to me. I know we've, we've met before and I've always been interested in your work because I think in particular you're at that really interesting crossover point between art, science and education. So could you tell me something about uh, th- those aspects of your work, please? My my practice is very much at, at the intersection of science and technology and I'm really passionate about education and community engagement as well. So all of the work I do is really looking at the interdisciplinary possibilities of, of sound in the environment, what we can learn from listening to ecosystems from interdisciplinary perspectives. And I know you've got a particular interest from what I've seen recently, just online of you, in river systems. And I've seen a lot of your educational work, particularly with younger people. Can you tell me something about that, getting people, how you get people to listen and engage with the sounds of rivers? Absolutely. Um, So I've been leading a, a research project called River Listening, which is essentially exploring the cultural and biological diversity of river systems through sound. And, you know, that was initiated through my practice as a sound artist, recording rivers with hydrophones and actively engaging with those river soundscapes, being really inspired by rivers, uh, which shifted into the scientific possibilities of using those sounds as a very non-invasive way to measure freshwater biodiversity and river health and the more I was working at that intersection of art and science in river systems the more I realized how powerful hydrophones and field recording were as a community engagement tool to to really engage local communities in their river systems. So I've been really passionate about running workshops, particularly with young people and community organizations where they can build their own hydrophones and be mapping the changing soundscapes of their river systems. That that practical aspect's really interesting. And and how how's that work? presented how's it finalized is it online or is it an installation how does that work yeah it's it's very multi-platform so it it kind of differs from community to community depending on the the kind of scale and scope of the river system itself and and the location of the river so all of the recordings are included in a database which we're using for biodiversity monitoring and, and mapping environmental change over time also um, public sound maps and sound installations that are presented in galleries. But I've been really passionate about uh, augmented reality sound walks, so geolocated sound walks where we're recording the river system and the stories of that river system as well, and then GPS locating those sounds along the river so the community can walk along the river system, listen to those recordings, listen to the compositions that they've created through the participatory workshops, but also listen to live hydrophones in the river streaming in real time. So that's been sort of the core outcome uh, in recent years for the River Listening Project. That's really interesting, sort of cutting-edge work. Are the the river systems, I I imagine they will be connected to the ocean eventually, and have you done much sound work in the oceans around that part of the coast? Absolutely. I mean, I guess my practice has had, you know, a very strong focus on on aquatic ecosystems, and it's always been at that intersection of, of freshwater and marine environments. I mean, the main focus of the river work at the moment has been mapping river systems from source 
to see. So it's inevitable that we're doing a lot of work uh, in those marine ecosystems. And, you know, for me personally, growing up in um, in South Australia, but also in North Queensland on the Great Barrier Reef, uh, I've been, you know, recording the soundscapes of marine ecosystems in Southeast Queensland for, for over 10 years now. So being able to, um, you know, record the annual migrations of humpback whales and the diversity of soundscapes that we have in marine ecosystems in Australia has been, um, you know, a really core part of my practice as well. Mm. I mean, of course, the Great Barrier Reef, your part of the world, is is often in the international news. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the time for the wrong reasons, the, the degradation and the reduction of the coral reef often appears, certainly on the news over here. How's, how's it looking to you, someone who's really much closer connected and listening to those environments? What, how do you think it's going? Look, I mean, it's I'm an optimist about these things, but it's it's not uh, going great, to be honest. It's um, you know, it's a very complicated situation, and unfortunately, there hasn't been the level of action that should have been taken, but at this point in time, to really protect and conserve the Great Barrier Reef. So, um, you know, the level of degradation there and the impact that we've seen on the reef, you know, in the last few years is is devastating. So it's um it's not a good situation. But, you know, saying that there are some incredible research projects and some remarkable scientists who are, you know, actively working to to protect the reef and and improve and restore what's happening there. And I think, you know, I've always found sound such a powerful way to draw people into that ecosystem as well. You know, like you say, we, we kind of constantly are seeing these images of the Great Barrier Reef and, you know, particularly when we look at that comparison between, you know, a healthy reef and a dead reef, you know, we don't often think about that in terms of sound. But, I mean, you know, as you know very well, the, the Great Barrier Reef is, is an acoustic environment and that healthy reef soundscape has such a rich and dynamic, um, you know, sonic environment. So I've been really passionate about, you know, looking at the role of sound as a tool for, for activism on the Great Barrier Reef and drawing communities' attention and awareness to what's happening beneath the surface through those incredible soundscapes. Mm, so this, that's a classic example of sound being used as a, a tool for an environmental monitoring of, of the reef. Definitely, yes. And, I mean, there's there's a lot of work happening, um, you know, up and down the coastline on the Great Barrier Reef around, um, yes, monitoring through sound and also, you know, looking at the way that sound and ecoacoustics can be used as a, as a regeneration and restoration tool as well. So when... Uh, you know, we've seen several research projects that have emerged in the last few years looking at, you know, actually playing back the soundscape of a healthy reef underwater to actually 
um, you know, draw that marine life back to the reef ecosystem. As we know, you know, uh, many species actually navigate the reef uh, through those those healthy soundscapes, the the classic sound of of snapping shrimp in a healthy reef. So it's quite interesting to see that, you know, that evolution of acoustics research at the moment, both being used as a tool for biodiversity monitoring, but also the potential around regeneration and restoration as well. Is it true that those reefs have individual signature sounds and that's how fish and other animals can identify their home reef? There's a lot of evidence that suggests that, yes. I mean, there's there's obviously, um, you know, complexities in improving and measuring um, some of those things, but there's, there's absolutely a lot of evidence that would suggest that uh, those reefs have a, an identifiable sonic environment that is, is used by marine life to navigate, yes. And what are your ambitions for the future? Do you have any sort of longer term or upcoming projects that you're working on? Yes, I mean I'm I'm really passionate about that intersection of of art and science in this work, and I think we're we're at this time where we're seeing this kind of rapid increase in engagement in the sciences around the value of sound as a tool for monitoring. Um, ecosystems and drawing a wider attention and awareness to what's happening to biodiversity across the planet. Um, but I'm really passionate about the role that listening plays in in these scientific studies as well. We we often have these large scale studies where listening isn't a key part of the process. Many of the scientific research is kind of removing that subjective process of listening. So I'm really passionate about um, the interdisciplinary possibilities of listening and and what we can learn from listening you know in different perspectives and really engaging the next generation in in this field of acoustic ecology and ecoacoustics and um, you know not just using sound as a tool to engage people in these environments and draw attention to what's happening um, but using sound as a tool for monitoring and naturally now using sound as a tool for regeneration as well. Leah, it's always so interesting and exciting to hear about your work and particularly your enthusiasm and depth of knowledge, particularly around the, the sort of evolution of, of the technology. Thank you so much for, t- for taking the time to talk to me. I'm asking every contributor at the end to leave us with a sound that's particular or significant or has some importance to you. Could you make a selection that we can play out at this conversation with, please? Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll play a sample of uh, one of my installations called Migration Patterns Saltwater, which is mapping the migration patterns up and down the coastline of Australia. So there's soundscapes of the Great Barrier Reef in here, but also the migration patterns of, of humpback whales and other marine species. So I'll leave you with that soundscape. Leah, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
My name is Marcus Ryman. I'm the co-founder and director of TBA21 Academy. So Marcus, why did the Academy choose to commission FreakWave? Well, it was at a time, uh, the first lockdown, right, when, uh, when more and more artists were uh, losing gigs, losing lectures, losing performances. And uh, Carmichael and I had been discussing the idea of Freakwave for a while now, right? Um, Freakwave as the next step in the next uh, evolution uh, of um, Freakout, which was the installation version of it. And um, so we were just, we just picked up this conversation again and just started talking about it. This was at the same time when we started thinking and conceiving the, um, the presentation of Oceans in Transformation, the, the exhibition that was meant to happen at Ocean Space in Venice. And we were thinking about how to release it on the Ocean Archive. And so we expanded the idea of one freak wave into seven freak waves. And then because everybody was under lockdown and actually reading and responding to their emails, we were able to have this large scale, 84 artists, a huge act of solidarity. And that's how Freakwave was born. And so how, what was the Academy's role in facilitating it? I understand, I mean, it's perfect time, even though we're all suffering from the lockdown, the fact that people couldn't get out and about to performances and installations and concerts to create a, an online version. So how, how was the Academy's role played out in producing the work? Well, it was on the one hand, we project managed this, the entire thing, right? 84 artists, 84 contracts, all of, all of that, right? That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, it touched exactly on what you just mentioned. No one was able to go outside. No one was able to do field recordings. No one was able, or very few people were actually able to get to the ocean and, and uh, do something there. And so um, the, the Academy... Uh, functioned also as a kind of provider of sounds, right? Because over the over the past nearly 10 years of practicing, we've built up quite uh, an elaborate archive of sounds, uh, which we're now hosting on the Ocean Archive. And then also Francesca Tissenborn-Amissa, the co-founder of uh, the Academy, she dove very deeply last year into sound pollution in the ocean. Uh, with a lecture performance called Sounds to Many. And for that, she reached out to um, the bioacoustics labs of Scripps Oceanographic Institute, uh, San Diego, La Jolla. And uh, so there was another um, real huge library of ocean sounds and anthropogenic ocean sounds, which we were then able to make uh, accessible to all of the artists. That's interesting, mm. that point, because there the Academy makes that really good connection, that bridge between the artist's contributions, the extensive archive that the Academy has, but also the connection to the science behind some of the challenges that the ocean's facing. And I know that's important to, to you and, and, and Francesca in that respect. So how do you think that valued the outcome, that, that connection of the artist's contribution and the connection to the, the scientific challenges that the ocean's facing? Well, I think first of all, it, contrib it contributed massively positively um, to, to the positive response from the artists, right? That there was kind of cause attached to it. And, and Mickey, when he made all the introductions and, and uh, started gathering the 84 artists was not shy 
to talk about the sound pollution and the trouble of the sound pollution in the ocean. So I think that contributed to the positive response. On the other hand, all the work that we do is underpinned by science and other forms of knowledge. It's right. It's like science is one form of knowledge. There are indigenous contributors. There are other forms of knowledges that contribute. But uh, it is important that everything that we do is a collaboration that is also based on science, right? And, um, and therefore, this exchange that is never meant to be uh, just a transactional exchange, I give you information, you give me audience, or I give you information and you give me images, um, but, but really we're tr what we're trying to facilitate is a collaboration. Right? That, is, that is the important thing. Where is the added value when uh, the artistic poetic speculation comes together with a more um, normative process like, uh, like science, right? Uh, I can understand, I mean, as I have, you know, that all the artists wanting to get on to the mixer and, and do their own mixes, because I think one of the beautiful things about this project is it's not fixed. You know, the audience, whoever they are around the world, aren't just presented with a fixed artwork. They get the chance to engage with it. And I imagine... Um, surely, you know, one of the aims of the Academy is that through doing that, people then start to realise for themselves the significance and importance of the largest habitat that we've got. I mean, have you seen any success in terms of the outcome of, of the public using this mixer? The response has been tremendous, right? So really this, this kind of intuitive engaging with the sounds that is really something that sits outside of the realm of of imagination of most people, right? Most people are still with Cousteau, the silent sea. So to, to understand <laughs> and connect to, right? To connect to um, all of the sounds that are in the ocean that are either mechanical, anthropogenic, or, but also natural, right? It, it's, it's something that lies outside. So I think this has already started to, uh, to raise some awareness on the one hand. On the other hand, all of the work that is uh, on the archive with the mixers is also underpinned with research papers and so on. So if you want to, if you're really interested in, you can dive really deep into the different topics. And if I was a newcomer to the mixer and to Freakwave, where would you recommend I go and how would I tune in um, to, to the detail? Well, I think um, choose your favorite uh, geography, right? Uh, North Sea to Red Sea, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, the Pacific, Equatorial Pacific, the Humboldt Current, wherever you want to go, North, South, the Seven Seas are all there. And um, find the mixer, press play and start moving the buttons. That's the nice thing. Wherever you want to go, we've got the sound for you and you're invited to do whatever you want to do with it.
Stage, the Streaming Age podcast was brought to you by Tizia Morremisa Art Contemporary. This was a co-commission between Stage and TBA21 Academy. Special thanks to Markus Reimann. Remember to visit our website to experience Freakwave on www.stage.tba21.org. If you enjoyed listening and want to stay up to date with future episodes, please do subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Reviews and shares are always deeply appreciated. Today's episode was dedicated to Freakwave. The interviews were conducted by Chris Watson. The editor-in-chief of stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Surroth is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutiérrez is our content curator. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramírez. Ina Speranda and Gidra Vellodova are project managers. Elena Utrilla is our production assistant. This episode was edited by Anna Esteve, and our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf, the same Carl Michael from Freakwave. Thank you for listening. <laughs>